direct from the web, it's Billy Masters Live. And now, please welcome your host, Billy Masters. Welcome everyone to a special Billy Masters Live cocktail hour. I may suggest that you grab yourself a drink. Grab a bottle. This could be a while. Oh, my God. So, uh, it's been a while, and we have a very special reason to be back. Oh, thank you. Somebody in the booth is on top of things. Uh, Today is Monday, October 2nd, 2023. We always say this for the archivists, that you know what's going on in the world. So, New York had those floods last week. Boston was rainy and miserable, and it's beautiful. It's like 75 out tonight. Um, Before I start the show, let me just tell you, I will be in Las Vegas at Las Vegas Pride this coming weekend, but Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I get in town Wednesday. Why do you get in town Wednesday, Billy? Because, well, first, because I was supposed to see Dita Von Teese's opening night, and she has canceled, you know, the things you can catch while, while bathing in a martini glass. I can't even tell you. Um... You don't want to go to your rapid care for that. Um, Thursday night, I will be going to see Varla Jean Merman at the Westgate. No, she is not in the Barry Manilow room. She's in the uh, comedy club, and I've never been there, so I'm very excited. So if you're in Vegas, please come to the show. Varla is at the Westgate Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Friday night, I think it's sold out already, but Kathy Griffin is at the Mirage, so I will be at the Mirage. And then uh, Friday night is the Pride Parade. I think it's like at 7 or something. Kathy's at 10, and Saturday is the festival. Okay? Just so you know. Then I'm going to be in Los Angeles the week after, and I'll tell you where I am. Go to, oh, I should just tell you, go to billymasters.com if you want to know where I am, um, or to read the column. It's free. It's free. You know what is not free is the book. See? Do you see? That's the segue. I know. That's why I make no money. Um, What is not free is this fantastic book. It's called Leading Lady. Uh, the Memoir of a Most Unusual Boy. So, those of you who watch this show regularly know... Oh, someone in the booth. What number show is this? I know it, we're in the third season or fourth season. But calculate, because I'm curious what number this is. Charles Bush was on the very first episode of Billy Masters Live. Did you know that, Charles? Charles looks aghast, possibly agog. Um... Now, yes, there were two or three, like, preview shows. You know, like all good theater, we have previews. But, um, yeah, he was my very first guest. And he has this fantastic memoir out. Um, I will tell you, oh, he has a better image. There it is. But I'm going to tell you something. If you want to know a little bit more, and in a kind of raucous way... Find Whores of Lost Atlantis. It is a fantastic... I take Whores of Lost Atlantis out. I should just leave it there. Where am I? Hello, I'm here with the whores. Mm, that way. Um, I take Whores of Lost Atlantis out at least once a year and read it. And laugh? 
I have the most fun reading this book. I've got three copies of it. Said if I want to read it at any of my little homes, I read it. But we're not promoting that because he doesn't get any money for that. Leading Lady, a memoir of a most unusual boy, is out now. It is a fantastic read. And it is, oh, can we get rid of everything? Thank you. And it is um funny, poignant. Um, relatable. Here's the most surprising takeaway from this book is how relatable it is to anybody. If you're, and we'll talk about that up at the top. Uh, if you work, if you want to be like an accountant, you may not believe this. It's relatable. And I will explain why in a moment. Now, I would love to typically do a great introduction for Charles, but I decided to let someone else do the introduction. So let me uh, pass the mic over to Beyond the Grave. But, uh, Charles, Charles Bush is such an amazing man. I, uh, he truly deserves the Legend Award, which is what the award is called. He's an actor, he's a playwright, he's a trailblazer, a Tony nominee, a, a one at Sundance Best Performance Award, a Dama, Dama, Drama Desk Award for career achievement, um, known within the theater community as a wonderful, kind, nice, generous, smart, relevant. Everyone I was asking, give me one word for Charles. And, uh, humorous. Um, uh, also, I would add great humanity. If you've ever seen uh, some of his movies, there's great humanity, there's great pathos, because he's been through a lot that a lot of your scholarship people are uh, just learning what they're going to have to go through in life. And Charles not only took his life, but turned it around and made drag into an art form, which I think is an amazing thing to do. It gives me great joy that you all my family. It gives me such joy to give this to you, because I love you so much. And you truly, besides our great friend, you're a great artist. So with joy, I give you this award. All right, let's bring out the fabulous, the legendary Charles Bush. Okay, come on, John. There's got to be an early bird special someplace. Hello, darling. Oh, my voice. You had to show that. I get, I get so choked up whenever I see her. I love. So her. does she. It was a very, very yeah, emotional it, night for, for both of us. And and let me tell you, I mean, you know this, but people don't know this. Um, everyone asked Joan to do things like that, and she rarely did it, and she only did it if she could be sincere. She wouldn't just show up to, like, talk and get a free meal. She had to really care for the person, love them, and believe in them. And so that is a great honor. Yeah, well, it was. It was... I couldn't believe I was getting a legend award from her. She should have received a legend award every single day of the year, as far as I was concerned. Yeah. She, I don't think she ever got an award for anything, ever. Well, she got the daytime Emmy. That oh, was it. Okay. Well, thank God yeah. for that. Yeah. Um, you know, I want to talk about the you know, your book. First off, thank you for being here. You oh. are somebody who has never, I don't think you've ever said no to me. I, I do remember when Lainey Kazan canceled with Michelle Lee the first time we tried it and I called you at like quarter of 12 and you said, who canceled? 
<laughs> and uh, uh, you were there for me. And who better with Michelle Lee than you? But um, thank you. For, I, I appreciate not only you being here for me, but our friendship, because that means a lot to me. And I, I, I forgot that I was your first guest. So this <laughs> wonderful symmetry. To yeah, really. Oh, good. So we're done. All right. This is it. <laughs> um, but I wanted to. Um, leading lady, uh, it's a great book. Um, and what I want to talk about is the relevance. Um, you know, there were things, and I knew some of this from Wars of Lost Atlantis, which is fictional, somewhat fictionalized. Um, that really you knocked around, you were not an overnight sensation, you took a long time to find your way, you worked as a temp when you had to, you worked as a hooker when you had to, you worked as a go-go boy when you had to, which we'll get to, but led to a great opportunity. Um, but you really are an example that you just, I hate to say it, you just say yes. And you scramble for whatever is out there. Well, y yes, and you just kind of, um, you know, when you're trying to, you know, make it or figure it, figure out how to do it. You, you know, you just uh, keep just taking whatever possibilities are out there, and um, yeah, you can't. Yeah, you I, can't. You can't say no because you know, what, what else? You know, is there? Well, it seems to me, and you, you mentioned it several times in the book, that um, one thing that you never never were lacking was confidence in the sense, now you may not have had it in every moment, but you really believed in yourself. You believed you were special. You believed that you were going to be great and what was taking everyone else so long. Well, I really felt just that if, if I just kept at it, just just like a horse with blinders on, just kept at it. It was never distracted away from, from some sort of, well, my goal was to earn a living, you know, was not to, you know, be, uh, have my own TV show or, or win an Oscar, just to earn a living in, in theater. And I just kind of thought that if, if I just kept at it and kept getting better, if I kept learning and growing and just wasn't distracted that um, somehow I would earn my living. <laughs> Did you think that you had, I mean, at the time you, you talk on reflection that some of the things you were going in the wrong direction, but at the time, was there ever something you did that you thought to yourself, this is a mistake. I know it. No, <laughs> I guess. I, guess I mean, I'm, that's great. The things, you know, I don't know. Like even, even in the past 15 years, I've had this, new career that's kind of ending yes as a cabaret entertainer and my friend tom judson and i we traveled to 37 cities and four countries over the past 12 15 years and uh and even there you know i you know i booked i was like madame rose and gypsy i i booked the act you know in in different countries and i don't know what the hell i'm doing and you know i i i, I never I don't ask enough questions is kind of my <laughs> fatal mistake. I don't ask enough questions. I just throw myself into it. And there were a number of times where, where, you know, we would show up in, in Paris in Paris, very glamorous, but turned out that I didn't know since I don't speak French that on the flyer, I thought it said shows at eight and 11. It meant eight to 11. And it turned out that we weren't like there doing our act. We were just in a, in a restaurant in a very small cafe <laughs> 
just, the entertainment. You know, we were just like, you know, the lounge person, you know, and, and it was this tiny little room. And now I could have been all huffy and weird, but we were in Paris and it was a beautiful room. And so I thought, well, maybe I could just pretend that I'm in one of, in an old 40s movie where Rita Hayworth, um, you know, they always, it's always interesting those movies where the, the performer gets up and does one song and then she goes right into a scene with Glenn Ford. It's like, what, what kind of act is this? She's only doing one song. So I thought, well, I'll do that in this cafe since people weren't showing up at eight o'clock to see a show. They were just coming in, in drips and drabs when, when you know, they wanted dinner. And so I, I started off just standing by the bar, being very Dietrich, and I started singing my song at the bar. And then I had no microphone because it was just tiny, tiniest little room. And then I, <laughs> then I, you know, got a, I think I had my, I had my appetizer. And then <laughs> after I finished my appetizer, I got up and some more people came in. So I sat down at somebody's table, you know, and sang my, my ballad to them. Then I had my entree. <laughs> I came back, somebody else walked in. I sat there at table, sang another sad song. And it was really kind of marvelous, but you know, let lesson to be gleaned to myself, just, Oh, don't get all worked up and just throw yourself into it and see maybe something fun. Will get. At least you'll get a good story out of it. I've thrown myself into a lot of situations just because I wanted to tell it to Julie Halston. My, <laughs> uh, Who's I, going I, to join us soon. Yeah, but um, I just thought, oh, this is good. I, I don't know if I want to do this, but it's going to make such a great story to tell Julie on the phone. I'll, I'll just go ahead and do it. Uh, you know, I'll say that, you know, so that is a quality that we share and that a lot of performers share that when something horrible happens, you think this is really horrible, but it's going to be a really funny story. It, it also helps if you're with somebody. When I was yeah. starting out my career as a solo performer, because, you know, it's funny that I ended booking at bookending traveling around because for the first eight years of my career, I was, I was doing these solo monologues and booking myself at tiny uh, nonprofit theaters around the country. Um, but I was all by myself. And that could be that could be really upsetting when you show up and you're just at the mercy of some odd, you know, establishment who doesn't know what to do with you. And they're just kind of like, OK, you know, you can dress in the hallway or you can, you know, we don't have anybody to do your lights and sound, but there's a girl who just volunteered to be an usher. So we'll, you know, she can. She, Maybe she can help you figure out how to turn the lights on. You know, when you're by <laughs> yourself, it's very upsetting and depressing. And what am I doing here? And, you know, is, is this, you know, this isn't at all what they promised and all that. But, you know, when you're traveling with someone. So when I started and I did it again with Tom Judson, you know, uh, and we're together, you know, all these we could be, you know, we, we were stuck in such Spain, beautiful place. But it turned out that we were booked in a, in a jazz club that had been closed for the last 40 years <laughs> and, and they never told anyone that it was open <laughs> but you know if i'd been alone i might have thought oh god I'm all, i went all the way here to spain and there's six people are going to show up and that's just because they, they happen to be working there but uh, <laughs> tom we were laughing we got to you know it was just really fun and we were in spain together and you know so it, it makes a difference oh absolutely um you know, 
I like the structure of your book because you and I have talked about this over the years so many times that you're doing it. And I know that you really, I don't want to say you struggled, but you bounced around between different formats. And you found this way that is sort of conversational, that we all tell a story and then say, oh, but that reminds me, I'll get back to this, but that reminds me of this. And then, okay, now where was I? I mean, at some point you just say, Okay, and it might be a page and a half aside, and then sometimes it might be a longer aside, mm-hmm. but um, it's very you. Um, was that hard? Was that easy? No, I just, I want, I st- I've worked on this book for almost 14 years, to be quite honest, amazing. Off, off, off and on, and uh, I had many different structures. I didn't really, I came into it not knowing, you know, how I wanted to tell the story. I just thought I had some good stories to, you know, throw down on paper. And, you know, I tried at one point doing a linear book where, you know, chapter one, I am born, you know, and, and then I, <laughs> I get frustrated when I read books that where, you know, it takes forever to get to the sexy part or, <laughs> or, or the famous people. And, you know, cause there are chapters on their ancestors and their parents and their, you know, and then the long childhood and adolescence. So I, I kind of thought it'd be interesting to, um, to sh- first start more in the present, flashback, it's rather cinema- mm-hmm. cinematic. And then there, there is kind of a chronological uh, line yeah. through, through it, but then I go off on tangents. Like for instance, uh, I guess the best example would be I'm, I, when I talk about how my aunt who, who raised me began taking me to Broadway shows uh, when I was eight. And I'd say, well, among the shows we saw was Carol Channing and Hello Dolly, which then, makes me think about when I shared a dressing room with her uh, in 1995. But then I go mm-hmm. back to being nine years old. So it's, there's, there is a logic <laughs> to it, I hope. Yeah, there definitely is. But what's really predominant in the book are the women in your life. I mean, your father figures somewhat my favorite quote was when you said that at one point he said to you, he found himself oddly attracted to the women you played. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> I didn't either. You know, my, my father was a, he was a character. And, you know, and, and, and really, uh, I hope he doesn't come off too, too badly in the book. I think I was pretty, pretty fair. Uh, it just, you know, he was, my father was an eternal 17 year old, basically. And but a lot, but like a lot of seventeen-year-olds, a lot of fun and very affectionate and always encouraging, never never critical. But he just was not the most dependable person, and just not that, not that really emotionally involved as maybe a seventeen-year-old would be. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, from the very beginning, you talk about mother figures and yeah. you know you've had so many and you you're as you mentioned your aunt lil was mother and father at a certain point yeah. you know certainly a mother figure initially but at a certain point took over the entire parental unit yeah. Yeah. um and thank god for her because i wonder with you left to your father for instance what would have happened to you well, I tell you, you know, she just really set, uh, saved my life because, you know, my mother died when I was seven and I was living in, in um, suburbs of New York, Hartsdale, and I really had dr- drifted. And so by the time I was 14, I really was uh, you know, flunking out of school and just not functioning. 
And so then my aunt, who I'd always been close to, I'd always spent weekends with her all my life. Uh, but at this point, she stepped in and, and had me move in with her full time in Manhattan and had to oh, just, you know, she had to get me to pe- pass these courses so I wouldn't be left back. And uh, and it was it was really kind of lessons in life and, and lessons in discipline, lessons in, in concentration, uh, basic things, uh, uh, lessons in, in just figuring out how how one fits into the world you know that you're not in a certain sense we are on this earth alone but but we you know we have to fi- find a way of realizing that we're, we're part of the greater world you know, and well not, also lessons in love yeah lessons you know love. lessons in love she, I mean, she was capacity. she she had great capacity to love and and uh, such devotion and and yet, what I what I think is quite marvelous is that um, her ultimate goal, as much as she needed to be needed and and loved so with such intensity, her her goal was for me to become independent and to be on my own and to uh, to get into college. That was the immediate immediate goal, which did not look likely at all. Uh, but to get into college and then be an independent, strong person. That was. That was the goal. It was never to be, you know, that I should be with her, you know, for eternity. Uh, no, she was not that kind of lady. You know, I, I found it interesting. Again, I found so many parallels. So I can't even, I mean, we life for five hours. Yeah, so many. Because I was not a great student, but I had a teacher who, this was way before anyone understood ADD, who said, Billy's really smart. And... When I went to junior high, they put me in a lower division and they said, you have to put him in the honors division. They said, but he'll get C's. She's like, he's going to get C's in the lower division. He needs a challenge. And better, he should be an average honors student than an average, you know, slow student. And that was revolutionary in the 70s. And you said something that you really didn't understand how you could go to summer camp and be lauded for your writing and then come back to school and be said, yeah, he really doesn't have anything to say. He's not a great writer. I was invisible invisible in school. And yet, yeah, other people, yeah, I was turning out full-length plays. uh, But I was considered very, you know, just kind of this invisible person. Not to be fit, you know, maybe to be fair to the teachers, if you're not presenting it, this material to them, they're, I, I don't know, fuck them, you know. They, <laughs> they should have known, they should. But should, that's what I'm wondering, was Aunt Lil one just, of those people who had that really, she saw that in you? Well, she knew me better than everyone. She knew me from birth. And she, when right. I was, uh, and I was so young, I was showing that I had enormous imagination and creativity and saw things in a special way that entranced her. She really was so enraptured with my creativity that it, it was a mutual, we benefited mutually. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. it would be facile to say that it's just a one-sided thing, though, this, this lady who just devoted herself to this uh, uh, troubled child. Uh on the other hand, I allowed her to be an artist because mm. she, when I went to um, art school, I went to high school of music and art, which is for uh, it's a public school for, for gifted kids. And I got in, I draw well. And so I, I, I got in as an art major, 
but you know, every, every, everything's a problem for me. Screwing a light bulb is a problem for me. Today, I, I've never learned, as she used to say, you have to learn the mechanics of living. I've never learned the mechanics of living, and I've always had some good friends who, who've basically taken care of me after Andalian st- stopped. I've other people stepped in, and my friend Carl, who's who's going to come on later, is you know, you know, been this extraordinary figure in my life as a director and as as a friend, as kind of a son in some ways, uh, and uh, just I, a series of people in my life who have enormous focus and concentration, and and love me. Uh, one of the things your father. Oh, first let me ask you: Does anybody still call you Chuck? No, and it's funny, you know, I was named after um, my mother's uh, brother, Charlie, who uh, was killed in, in World War II. And so when I was born 10 years later, let's say, it was still very fresh tragedy. And they wanted to name me after him, but to call me Charlie was too painful. And mm. so somehow, I don't know who came up with Chuck, which certainly does not suit me, but it just... That was my name until uh, basically until I graduated from college. And I always thought it was kind of a silly name for me, but I kind of miss it a bit. You know, I, I, I get a little nostalgic thinking that maybe, you know, I wouldn't mind somebody calling me that. <laughs> um, your dad did, uh, you know, he made one very large contribution to your life, which was he brought you to your first opera. And you saw Sutherland and Sonambula at the Met. Yep. And you talk about this revelatory moment. And, you know, Sutherland was not known as the greatest actress, but she had a presence. And she, yeah. and I'm curious, what it, what was it the opera itself? Was it her? Was it the combination of music and theater? It, well, I was, uh, I guess I was eight years old. And it was the whole experience of, first of all, going to the old Metropolitan Opera House, which was the most extravagant Beaux-Arts, you know, 19th century theater. It was, you know, it was just this wonderland of, of you know, gold uh, gilt, you know, moldings and uh, just and chandeliers. And, oh, you, you know, you, it was, you were in a complete fantasy land. And then the, the opera itself, you know, with the set being this uh, oh, a whole, you know, Italian village, uh, you know, village square. Oh, you know, that all the the artifice of it. And then in the center of this this extraordinary figure, uh, Joan Sutherland, who, you know, I, I at eight, eight years old, I'm not going to know, you know, how much of an actress she is or she isn't. But mm-hmm. the fact that she was this extraordinary uh, prima donna and the audience just beside themselves you know uh, with just her her, her magnificence and and, and just fo- focused on on this red-headed you know goddess-like figure that to me that was what was imprinted on me and you know one would think oh then he became a great opera queen or something it wasn't the music i mean it was glorious being surrounded by the sound but just the the artifice, the theatricality, the the um, the architecture, the curtain, you know this, and and all of our attention focused on this one lady, you know, who's who's just driving everybody into a state of of uh, ecstasy. Never got over it. <laughs> Was there anyone in theater that had that same impact on you? 
Uh, well, a bit um, much bit later, uh, when I saw Zoe Caldwell, a great Australian actress who won five Tony Awards and played created the role in New York of Jean Brody in the Prime of Miss Jean Brody, played uh, all the great roles in Medea, and, and then played Maria Callas in, in, in Terrence McNally's Masterclass, uh, her, her final um, uh, Tony Award. And she had this bigger-than-life kind of Sarah Bernhardt grandeur to her, and she was a small you know, lady, but just, you know, on stage, you, you were riveted by this, this voice and this presence. And, oh, she was magnificent. Um, there's a story, um, you know, we're, we're jumping around a lot, but, you know, this is what we do. Um, that you had, uh, you had invited Zoe Caldwell to see you. Uh, what show was it? Was well, it Red Scare? I this play Red Scare on Sunset. Now I did, I'll try to do this in a succinct way. Um, I know. When I was 14, <laughs> I guess I was uh, 67. I guess I was maybe 14. Uh, my aunt took me to see her do The Prime of Miss Jean Brody on Broadway. And, you know, things were very loose back then in the 60s. I We found the stage door and Antheline kind of pushed me through. She waited outside and I... It was after a matinee, and I found uh, Zoe Caldwell alone in her dressing room, and and you know, knocked on the door, and she was very kind to me. This you know young boy, and I told her I wanted to be an actor, and she uh, held my face to the light, and she said, "Well, you you have the face of an actor. Of course, that means <laughs> nothing. That means nothing." Uh, but but anyway, she, uh, years <laughs> go by, and she said, "Oh, whenever I play, you must come see me," and I never did. And, and then many years later, you know, I'd always fantasize that someday she'd see me in a play and she'd think that I was, you know, worthy of her early attention. And I met someone who had was, met her while she was teaching a master class down in Florida. And I said, oh, you got to give me her, her address. I wrote her a letter and told her about how I'd met her years before and, and, and always wished that she could see me perform. And she called me up and said, I'm coming to your play. I won't tell you when. We were doing this play. Julie and I were doing Red Scare on Sunset in New York. And we'd had great audiences. One of big laughs. This one particular night, this it's just dead. You know, and, and I was of the mind in my 30s that with a dead audience, you just push harder. You do more. You be more inventive, more zany, more faces, you know. And I was doing everything, but you know, sticking a cucumber up my ass. I mean, just anything to, to hook them in. And when the show was over, um, the house manager said, "There's a Zoe Caldwell here." Oh um, no! Now she comes tonight, and she Julie was there, and we uh, she came in. She's all in black, you know, and she had black coal on her eyes, and and she came up to me, and you know, I was just kind of like, oh, and she put her hand on my face again, and she said, "You're." You're so beautiful, but you're pushing, you're mugging and hamming it up. Uh, you know, you're much better than that. You're, I don't, I don't, I don't want ever to see you do that ever again. And she really lit into me, and the, you know, she had been away from the stage for for a number of years at that point, and uh, the rest of the cast, I think, were wondering who the hell is this strange lady who's really giving Charles a terrible time. And you know, by I, to my credit, you know, I just listened, and you know, and then she. Um, I said, well, uh, uh, thank you. <laughs> Will we be seeing you on the stage again? And she said, no, I, I should never be on the stage again. And she fled the theater. And 
course, a few years later, she did master class and won another Tony. But, you know, I thing was that, you know, and I, and I get, I pat myself on the back. I wasn't like, Oh, how dare she do that to me? And I, I really, I thought right at the time I thought, okay, mm. you know, she could have very easily not come back at all. First of all. Right. Or sent me a note or, or come back and said, you know, one of those awful things like, you know, you really did it, you know, something that, you know, that was something. Yes. <laughs> and you know, it, it, it's so mean when people, have, I've had people do that to me and, you know, they, oh, just, you know, really the hell with you, but she cared mm-hmm. enough to um, really, you know, set me straight and, and it started me off on a, on a 30 year journey. I'm, I'm st- still on, I'm, and, and we're going to do a new, pl- Carl and I are doing a new play this winter and I, I want to really try to to apply these lessons from her of being true and and yes, you can do comedy and yes, there can be a camp element to it and par- uh, theatrical parody, but it doesn't mean you can't be honest and 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 true and really really be human. So I, I'm st- I'm still working on it. You know, it makes me wonder: Have you ever been? Have the revolt roles been switched? Have you ever seen somebody that you thought was talented, who is going down the wrong path or not doing it? And would you tell them? Um, I've, I don't think I've been quite as dramatic as, uh, <laughs> but there have been a couple times. I, I won't say who, but there were a couple times where I saw somebody who I thought was very special, and uh, like d- doing their cabaret act. And just think, oh, they're on the wrong, you know, little on the wrong track, and they could be so good. And you have to be careful because, you know. But I, I think I, a couple of times I said to someone, oh, you know, who was um, that they had. I think it was a cabaret actor with this person uh, had memorized all of their banter, and it came up in a fake. And I, I said, I think that that's what you're trying to do is, is you're making it very difficult for yourself. It, it comes off artificial, and I think that if you just uh, write write down talking points and and just go over do the, the your banter in the shower and ever over and over till you you know you're kind of got it down but i think when you write when you write to me when you write cabaret banter word for word and memorize it it, it seems stiff yeah, i, I still my, my cabaret acts i don't do that i intentionally never never write it all down i i write the first line down i know where i start i know where i end and then in between, I, I, but I'd go over it many times to, okay, I'm talking too much here, I'm t- uh, whatever. You know, it's interesting that um, you had the experience with Zoe Caldwell, and then uh, conversely, and obviously much earlier, you had jumped in to help Charles Ludlam in a play, <laughs> and you were criticized that it needed to be bigger. And yeah. you have to obviously match him and match the tone of the moment, obviously. Yeah. But you know, you've learned these things from two giants, two very different rules and lessons. Many, many lessons to be learned. Yes, when I was quite quite young, I was in my twenties, and I idolized Charles Ludlam. So I mean, he was probably the biggest theatrical uh, um, influence on my career as writer and actor. And uh, at one point, I was kind of in his orbit, and he called up in the afternoon and said this girl playing a small role of Hecate, the goddess of hell, in his play Bluebeard, uh, had a family emergency and was left town. Would I come in, just rehearse with the stage manager for five minutes, you know, and then 
do the show and you know, I was so young and today I, I think I go, oh my God, but you know, I was young and there it was a small part. It really was just a handful of lines and, and I had such nerve. I said, um, I said, can I bring my own costume? Cause I didn't really like what she was wearing. <laughs> he said, fine, whatever, whatever you want. And so I rehearsed with the stage manager and next thing I knew, you know, and so I chose, I didn't know what, you know, I was playing Hecate, the goddess of hell. I kind of gave myself a kind of a lot of Lenya sort of European, slightly European accent. And I was sort of seething with that dec- decadence, Bluebeard, come here, come forth, Bluebeard. Um, and uh, I was very kind of glamorous Hecate. So next thing I know, I'm, you know, it's the end of the play. I came on the very, toward the end of the play, the climax. And suddenly I look on stage and all the, there's all this dry ice and there's my idol, Charles Lotham, who was extraordinary, charismatic. And, and he was calling me forth from hell. And I came on and I, I did what, you know, what I thought I should do. And afterwards, you know, it got a lot of attention and, from the audience. And, and Charles said, uh, so that's very good, but you have to be bigger. So, of course, next night I do it again. I thought I was bigger. He said, Tony, you got to be bigger. Third night, I, I, I thought I was, I was still trying to hold on to my, you know, what I was doing, but make it a little bigger. And whoa, when we got off stage, he just pulled me aside. He, he said, uh, he said, I had egg all over my, my face. Who the fuck do you think you are? And fuck you. And oh, I was so upset. My idol that I displeased him. And, and when I got, I was still living at home. I was living with my aunt still. And, uh, I, that by the time I got home, I thought, "Oh, he's just jealous." Like, like he would. <laughs> I mean, really, that's that's so silly. Like, but I was very young, and my aunt said, "You just he gave you a break because he let me do my solo show as late shows the theater. Mm-hmm. You do exactly what he says." So I came back and next night, and I was like, "Oh, Bluebeard, you know, you conjured me forth." And, and she goes, "That that's it. It's good." And, but then, you know, years later, you know, and I, I started thinking about it. And as I had my own, you know, theater company and and people came in, in and out of my plays, I, I realized that what he was say, what, what he was trying to teach me, but he might have explained it, um, was just that an actor can have a, come up with a very interesting uh, interpretation and, and bold choice that doesn't fit the play. Mm. It's not serving. You have to serve the whole play and I was wrong. I was, because I was unrehearsed, um, I was coming at the, the peak, the climax that Ludlam had been building, building higher, higher pitch, higher pitch. And at the end, Hecate appears, you know, instead, you know, suddenly Hecate appears. Uh, Hello there. You know, so <laughs> I, 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 was, I was wrong, but you know, it'd be nice if, you know, someone would just say, maybe we should rehearse for five minutes before and, you know, I'll explain to you as, as an older person who's, you know, who is such a great artist. I'll explain to you why you're taking the wrong approach. But anyway. Was there ever any, you know, feeling from him that like, who the hell is this young guy coming up, you know, doing similar things? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's still around <laughs> years, after, years after his death. Yeah. No, I, I, I you know, he when we did Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, when we opened it off Broadway, he and, and Everett Quinton, his partner came to the show and, and he um, was very nice afterwards. Very nice. But then later it wasn't until after his death, many years later, there was a biography, a very fine biography written about him. And, and in the biography I read it and said, Oh, that, that 
Ludlum was very, very angry that I had somehow appropriated his uh, style. And, and, and I was enormously influenced by him, enormously. And, and I would have felt, ooh, absolutely the same as him. I would have been very upset. I, I, I like to think that over the next four decades that I've found my own voice. And, but, I'm, but I'm still, you know, he was the kind of the father of, he created this form of theatrical parody uh, and drag and, and all that. And, and I, you know, I'm part of his, let's, uh, let's at least let's say that, that I'm uh, part of the lineage. Was there ever a, a, an opportunity or an interest in doing a Bloodland play like Irma Vep or something over the years? No, no I wouldn't do that. However, um, oh, maybe, I, I don't know, I get so confused about what, how many years go by. Is everything, <laughs> now in the last year, particularly with COVID, everything is so screwed up now. I, I, I can't tell if something was four years ago, seven years ago, I don't, whatever it was. Or last week. Not, not that many years ago. There's a very fine uh, theater in New York City called the Red Bull Theater, and mm -hmm. Everett Quinton had a relationship with them, and and I they do mostly, mo well they do full productions, but they do a lot of one night events, and so I was talking to Je uh, Jesse Berger, the artistic director, about doing something with them, and I said, well I'd love to do um, uh, one night reading of Charles Ludlum's adaptation of Camille, which I'd seen him play many times, and. Um, and I said, since Everett is involved, maybe he could direct the reading. And and so, because I, I, you know, I've, I've remained friendly with Everett in a certain way. We live in the same neighborhood, lived in the same neighborhood. So anyway, so Everett thought it was a great idea. And <laughs> of course, I call him up after he, he agrees to do it. I got such, such nerve. I said, I said Everett, since it's a reading, don't, don't you think maybe we should put some cuts in? You know, it's just, it's a little long and some of that stuff is all visual, you know, that maybe we should just cut that out. And I'm saying this to the, the widow and you know, the flame <laughs> and, uh, uh, and he said, no, uh, it doesn't need cuts. He said, but you yeah. know, Charles, um, it, this time you're going to have to really act. You can't just camp it up. <laughs> I thought that was fabulous. And then click. <laughs> that was just great. That was great. Um, you know, you've been at, you've been asked this, uh, you know, in earlier interviews, I saw, I saw some interviews with you from like 30 years ago, merely it's extraordinary. Oh. And so, you know, I want to ask you from this vantage point in your life with all the highs and the lows, is there anything that you would have changed? It sounds, it sounds sort of, um, phony for me to say no. But there's nothing I would have well, I mean, everybody does at a certain age. I think younger people would change things. But I think in yes. an older, you know. Although in the earlier interview, you said no then as well. No, I don't. I mean, it's, I've really had the um, career that I, I wanted to have. And I I, I didn't have. Um, I've tried sort of more commercial work. You know, I, I, I there was a period in the 90s where I had high-powered agents at William Morris who wanted me to get into television and I didn't particularly, but I was so, it was so intriguing to have an agent <laughs> and, and <laughs> interested in me, you know, that, that I played along and I, I pitched all these series ideas to HBO and Showtime and 
CBS. And, you know, I'm, I'm a great, I think I inherited the salesman gene from my father. And so I got a deal. Yeah. You got every, paid for them. Every single time I went into some big office, I came out of there with a deal. I mean, I couldn't believe it, but it also maybe because I didn't care that much. So I wasn't sweating or, you know, Oh God, this has got to happen. I was sort of amused by the whole thing. And, but then, you know, ultimately nothing was ever shot. What I, what I, I think what I delivered wasn't as good as what I pitched. And, uh, yeah. But was there anything in your life now that you've written it down that you said, Oh, you know, I think I would have been just as happy or happier had this not happened. No, it's all, I know it sounds, I really wish I could give you a, you know, an intriguing answer. I think I, there are a couple of times I, there are times I wish I hadn't responded to things so intensely that. But even that you learned something. From. Yes. Or I wish there, there are times, you know, that I, I wish I'd been a little nicer, that I'd been more thoughtful, that I'd, I'd anticipated other, you know, other people's needs more that, you know, I, that, that I'd like to, uh, and yet, you know, I probably make the same stupid mistake again. Well, it's interesting because you mentioned um, in the book, there's a great set. I mean, we're jumping, obviously. People, there's so much in this book. I mean, I'm not even going. We have, yeah, and we have to, guests coming. Well, I know. That's why I got to move. So we're not going to Milton Berle, B. Arthur, Liza Minnelli. The story's fantastic. You've got to read the book. But apropos of what you just said, um, when you had a little theater company in Chicago, oh. you know, um, people, you thought, interestingly, you thought everybody's happy. It's a success. You're the leading lady. Everybody, You're writing roles in everybody's voice. Right. And you think that we've got this great company. We're on this role. And say, when, until somebody says, let's sit down and just all voice what we're feeling. And what happened, Charles? What were they feeling? Well, you know, we, I, my goal, dream after college was to be like Charles Ludlam and have my own <clears throat> my own company and and be the leading lady and uh, and write plays for an ensemble. And I met a group of people. I was doing a I got a part in a, a play for a small nonprofit company, and we all got along in the dressing room. And I mentioned this fantasy, and they they all wanted to hook on, and so we overnight had this little company and and um i wrote very quickly wrote this 45 minute piece pastiche of old women's pictures and you know called myrtle pope and i played myrtle pope and and the other people played these roles and um and it was a very exciting period in chicago for me where you know i i had you know it was just just starting and and we you know we I, we booked this 45 minute piece in every kind of, you know, gay bar, you know, pub, you know, movie theater after the late show. And it was so exciting for me to, for the first time to see that I had something to offer and that audiences, these audiences, particularly gay audiences were, were responding to me. It was, it was just the most thrilling thing. I, uh, and, but then it, I, I just, I was oblivious. I didn't know that, uh, that the other, um, actors particularly the actresses in the company they they yes. their ambition they because they had told they had told me that they wanted to be in this kind of theater company but then i guess they felt that what they really wanted to be was in a more traditional company where you do other people's plays and and it's an ensemble and I, that was never the deal you know right. uh, 
So when they when we had this kind of encounter group and they all all the the women really it wasn't the boys the women are all just saying that you know, this is all about you and your you know your ego and your you know you wanting to be a star and and you're holding us back you know and mm. so I thought well I guess you know I guess I'm going back home to New York <laughs> and, and I says God is my witness as God is my witness I vow never to allow non-union actresses make me feel guilty about taking the final <laughs> bow you know so yeah but, but then the, I, the great the great irony of my life is that um, uh, how many years later uh, t- 10 years later 10 years later I started a little theater company with the exact same kind of thing with a different group of people and yet these were the, these were all people who who wanted to play with me and and loved having roles written specifically for their you know uh, their trip i used to call it and and they they respected me as as that i was going to be the leading lady and we we all had the same point of view and same dream and then this miracle and we really do consider like brigadoon just this miracle that this little sketch that we did you know in this bar for you know for two nights uh vampire lesbians of sodom that it took off Mm -hmm and moved to uh, a regular off-Broadway theater, ran for five years and established us with careers. And, you know. and so that brings us to our first guest. Right. So uh, Julie Halston, oh my God, is is a wonder of all wonders. Um, I, when I think I know everything she can do, I'll see her do something. I'll go, oh my God. And um, how, did she, how did you two meet initially? Is she is she coming on or? Are we, are yeah, we, she'll. Well, just you tell me what uh, how you just, met her. Well, we had met um, in San Francisco. I was doing my my uh, solo act at this wonderful place called the Valencia Rose Cabaret in the Mission area, and on Monday night I was doing kind of like Tuesday through Saturday, let's say, and on mm-hmm. Monday nights at kind of an open mic thing where they would have special events, and Julie and I share a friend. Bobby Cohen, who was my friend in summer camp and, and her friend in college. And he kept telling us each about the other one. And, you know, oh, you got to meet Julie. She's the funniest girl in the world, which makes you think that's the last person I want to meet. And I think she's, he said the same thing to her about me. So she had she was working on Wall Street as a, a corporate librarian, but she had fantasies about being a p- performance artist. And she had put together kind of a Spalding Gray kind of show. And she did it for one night on the Monday night, you know, at, at the Valencia Rose. And I went to see it and I didn't think it was very good because she didn't, she didn't know who she was. And she was, you know, she was, was sort of talk, talking, you know, with her voice, but like the, you start, we're respecting a punchline, but she was trying to be Spalding Gray and just sort of telling these stories that didn't seem to be going anywhere. So I wasn't too impressed. We met afterwards. We weren't very impressed with each other. And then um, a number of years later, back in New York, um, I was—I had the rare opportunity to do my solo material at this tiny little storefront theater, and you know it, it was just a disaster. Nobody's going to come see an unknown person in a solo show on a, on a dark side street that nobody ever walks up, you know, um, with no press. So I was desperate when like a bar rag would come to the sh- be coming to the show. Michael's thing is coming to the show. You know, mm. I need an audience. So I called everybody I knew and I found the name of this, the, this girl I'd met in San Francisco. And I said, well, you know, would, 
I'll give you as many tickets if you could bring your friends, just fill up my audience because I've got the, the a critic from the villager coming. And so um, she brought like 10 people. She knows so she has so many friends to this day and she liked what she saw. And then we, well, fill it in more when she gets on. She is that kind of person. So let me tell you, I uh, had gone to see a friend of mine in a play on Broadway. Very small role. Very small role. Although, as we know, there are no small roles. And um, this person said to me, there's this girl in the play that steals the show. And uh, you, you would love her. So she actually said this somewhere else. So here's the introduction. I'd have to tell you something. I've never had the privilege of being on stage with Julie Halston, but talk about Chaplin-esque. Yes. I mean, and, you know, all of those cliches, scene stealer, show stopper. I mean, <laughs> scenery chewer. No, she literally stops the show, which is hard to do in this play. I can retire from show business. No, but, what Elizabeth Ashley just no, said. No, 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 but, 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 but Julie Halston getting up a staircase <laughs> is one oh of God. the most brilliant things you will ever see on the stage. <laughs> So give it up for Miss oh Julie Halston. Oh my God! I remember doing that theater talk with with Liz. 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 Yes, our friend Liz. Liz. Um, that was so wonderful. And and I had was, no idea I was going to be seeing you in there. And I'm like, but that's Julie. You know, you think, oh, it's Julie. But it you was were quite extraordinary. An interesting thing though, because we had just lost Nikki Martin. Uh, and and uh, the director. A lot of us were very upset about that because we all liked Nikki so much. And um, Scott Ellis was slated to do "You Can't Take It With You," which of course is one of the greatest plays ever written. And he, they had James Earl Jones and whatnot. And apparently, mm -hmm. I found this out later. Nikki who was in the hospital and Scott talked about it. And I think apparently Nikki said, you know, you should have Julie Halston play Gay Wellington. And Scott wow. said, oh no, no, that we were, th that we're thinking about it. And, and of course I, I, I was like, well, I don't know what to do with that role. She's on for 10 minutes. But she falls up a staircase. Well, it, was, it was so it was so brilliant, and I, I I was kind of upset at first when I heard she was playing the part because you know she played you know real big lead roles you know with with me and and other plays and other plays, and then when I saw that oh she's playing this part that just comes on for you know a few lines here and there, uh, I I was sort of upset because you know I, I her mentor you know and I love her so much. But then when I saw it, she stole exactly. She stole the show from all these this extraordinary cast. What she did with the every, but she had like a handful of lines. Every line she got a huge laugh on, and they weren't even that. It wasn't you know, a comedy line. And then when she did this thing up the stairs, it, it was the most brilliant thing ever. Absolutely. And what I should mention is, is that you had this great opportunity with Scott Ellis, where you said, "Let me figure this out." Give me well, a performance and I'll give you a performance. Yes. Well, what was so brilliant and why I love Scott so much, because he trusts actors so much, but 
in the first couple of previews, I still wasn't figuring it out. I still didn't know how drunk she should be or whatnot. And Sam Mendez, you know, I love to drop a name. Sam Mendez said, you know, Julia, you should always go back to the text. Well, the text says she's drunk like a bottle of gin by herself. Well, you know, if you're going to drink a bottle of gin by yourself, you're not really going to be able to walk. You really <laughs> And so I had had a few previews and I really didn't know, I hadn't found it. And Scott said, look, Thursday night, you know, there are going to be people there, important people there. I'm going to give you this opportunity, though, to figure it out. I'm going to let you do whatever the hell you want on stage. The only thing I ask is that you go around and tell all your fellow actors that you're going to figure this out on stage and that they should be prepared for anything. But you're only going to get this one night to do this. And I figured out that night that if I was that drunk, I would be on the ground and that I had to crawl because you know, when you're that inebriated or sick or whatever, you, you crawl. And then I looked up at David Rockwell's set and I didn't realize that the stairs were that large <laughs> and that high up and I had to figure it out. And I had this great limerick to play with. And I started laughing myself on stage and I watched, I looked down at Rose Byrne and Anna Lee Ashford and Reg Rogers and they turned around because they were laughing so hard. And the audience, you know how this goes. The audience is watching the entire thing. They're watching me laugh at them. They're watching them laugh at me. They're hearing, you know, and it just, that was it. That was it. And then the next thing you know, I hear, and it's Scott Ellis running up the stairs, and he said, you're going to do that every night. You're going to do that every night. Great. Well, and as you know, Liz does not give praise lightly. Oh, <laughs> no. No. She's a trip in herself, obviously. Oh, wow. You know, Liz, Liz Ashley. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. So, her. but speaking of your trips, so what do you remember from first meeting Charles? Oh, I thought he was very aloof. <laughs> I, I didn't really know what to make of him. I know my friend Bobby kept saying, oh, you got to meet Charles Bush. And I was like, he's not very friendly. <laughs> um, on the other hand, I also knew that I, I, I wasn't very good. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, he was right about that. I didn't even really want to do this. My friend Bobby kept saying, you should do this. We're doing a fundraiser. We're doing a fundraiser. Um, and I, I, but I wanted, I wanted to try to be like a performance artist. I had no idea what to do. And it was only after I saw Charles's one man show alone with a cast of thousands that I was, it was a revelation. And I've always, I have said this in a few interviews that there were two men who changed my life uh, and transformed it completely. And one was Charles and the other was my late husband, Ralph. Ralph. And, and though they, they, I truly believe 
that I am successful today uh, because of that. Well, then, sorry, if I can tell the story. Of but but I, it's one of my favorite stories. Just So then when I, I was going to do Vampire Lesbians in this you know bar in the East Village, and um, we had <laughs> a, a wonderful lady um, playing the, the, we did two performances, and we had this late, wonderful actress pl- playing the succubus opposite me, and she didn't want, she had enough of us after two, two times. <laughs> and I wanted to do the show another weekend, and I needed another succubus, you know, and so uh, I, every single actress, everybody, my sister turned me down. Nobody, somehow, I don't know why it seems so unattractive to say, well, we're doing a play. It's in a bar on, you know, in, uh, on the Lower East Side. There's no rehearsal, no pay and no dressing room. And <laughs> why people didn't jump at the opportunity. And the last one, last one on the list of friends and was that was that girl from San Francisco I thought, oh, God, oh, God. So I called her up, sort of hoping she'd say no. And she immediately said, oh, yeah, I'll do it. I, I said, uh, have you ever been in a play? And she said, darling, I played Nina in The Seagull at Hofstra. <laughs> and I said, I said, uh, I said well, why don't you just come over to my apartment? Because my friend Ken Elliott was directing the play with my roommate. And I said, it's not an audition. Just, just come over and meet Ken. So she, she comes over, this tiny little narrow little apartment and she and we decided it's not an audition but we have we read a little bit and she's so terrible and so ken says um charles can i speak with you alone for a moment and we go into the kitchen which is three feet away and she can hear the entire thing and and he says she's terrible she can't act and i was so desperate because then we wouldn't have to be able to do it at all the play so i said well she played nina and the seagull at Hopka. <laughs> Whatever. So then, so we, so, so we say she's got the part. Then we go, we rehearse a couple of times in my apartment with this cast, and she gets worse. She's so terrible, and 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 she, Julie's a very intu- intuitive girl. And so finally, she stops the rehearsal and she says, "Listen, and you know, and first of all, everybody, the, the group, everybody kind of fell in love with her. Like you kind of can't help it. You just, she's so she, when when she wants to be <laughs> horrible." And anyway, so she says, stop, wait a minute. She goes, I know I stink, but you put me in a wig in front of 60 gay men and I glow. And she did. <laughs> she did. And here she is today, Tony Winner. <laughs> Tony Winner is right. Oh, we've lost her. No, we lost her. We silenced her. But we should bring Carl out real soon. You're too. silent, Julie. What did you hit? Oh, Can you hear me now? Yes, no, now we got you. Oh, sorry, darlings. Um, you know, Ken Elliott was our director and, and, and Charles and everyone else. I learned so much from, from all of them. They were all just fantastic. And, um, you know, it was a great experience being part of a theater company. So. Yeah. But I it's no it. Nina. But it's no Nina at Hofstra. Um, just to give people a take first off uh, Charles and Julie on Broadway was one of the greatest nights of my life as an audience member Um, was it as great for the two of you one of the great nights of, of our lives yes it was it really was it was fan freaking tastic and people still talk about it Oh yeah, uh, the pictures are amazing. I look at the pictures sometimes. 
I, I have a vi- I have a bootleg video in L.A. I wish yeah. I were in L.A. But it wouldn't have happened except for for the gentleman that we have coming on, Carl. Yeah, because you know we Julie and I have been, oh just daydreaming for years. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful someday to to do it one night on Broadway, Charles and Julie on Broadway, and and we had to, it was never going to happen. And finally, Carl had enough of hearing us yak about it. And next thing you know, he said, "Oh, we're all set." I went to the Actors Fund. And they're going to do it at the Music Box Theater, and now you've got to do it, and and so really it wouldn't have happened. Well, for- while this isn't that show, I just want people to have a glimpse of what Vampire Lesbians is about. So just a quick sousson of Vampire Lesbians. You're the one who's been persecuting me. Ha, me. Ha, ha. You've been obsessed with me for two thousand years. Yes. I'm obsessed with you. You made me what I am. Do you think I can ever forgive you for, for turning me into this thing? That is no human feeling? <laughs> this creature who thinks of nothing but her own survival, clawing and attacking anyone who poses a threat to me. Yes, I'm at the top of my profession, but I'm not so damn proud of it. <laughs> that's not Julie though. That was that was her. Place. I know, but we get, we don't have, we can't get everything. Oh, but you look a little bit like Margaret Hamilton in Wizard of Oz with this green hue. Yes. Would you do the show again, each of you? Oh well, I, under I, the right circumstances. Yeah, under the right circumstances, I think it would be a, a, a screen. A vampire lesbians or Charles and Julie? Yes. Well, either one. Yeah, I think it would be, under the right circumstances, I think it would be a scream. I do. I think it would be great. For, for I minute. always thought, and I still believe that the signature theater, which does, you know, sometimes they do uh, a, a playwright's body of work. I still think they should do a Charles Bush run of his work. I still. I mean, I, I, well, I he's very prolific. Yes. Can I ask one question? Then we're bringing Carl out. Um, because it's not always fantastic and laughing and wonderful. Charles mentions in the book that there was a time when you had a little schism and that he was a little jealous of the opportunities coming your way. And mm-hmm. um, I'm curious, you know, how did you feel about that time? Well, it was terrible in many ways. Um, I didn't know how to graciously move ahead with a career. Uh, At that time also, I was married um, and I was getting a lot of opportunities and I I wasn't very gracious about what we should have just done is sat down and talked about all these things. Um, But, you know, the the theater company uh, and I, I suspect a lot of people like Ludlum or Steppenwolf or theater companies that are born in a very sort of organic way with a very specific group of people, it does take on this strange um, family-like dynamic. Dynamic, thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) You don't, and, and, and like all families, there's a, there's a bit dysfunction and, uh, so I didn't know how to talk about what I was 
experiencing and what I was hoping for and what I needed. And um, I wasn't very gracious about it. Uh, and on the other hand, I think it was hard for everyone else because it was like, oh, yeah. Julie's getting a development deal and right. she's getting a big agent and she's, you know, this is a bit, this, let's just say it, you know, show business is a terrible business. It's a horrible, <laughs> horrible, brutal, competitive, terrible business. But um, we love it. Well, we love it. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, so, and then, uh, you, you know, the, the theater company was also, we had lost very big members, you know, in the AIDS crisis. Everything was changing. The dynamic was changing. So it was a tough time, but I felt terrible. I didn't, I never felt good about it. Um, and then Charles talks about how he had this terrible heart situation in the book. He talks about it. And um, I got a phone call. I was in Colorado with family and um, Andy Halliday, who was also in our theater company, uh, called me and said, Charles is in the hospital. And I was just, I said to my husband, we have to go home. We have to go back to New York. And that was it. And then we've had no problems ever since. But I, I wonder how many, you know, 40-year friendships don't have some kind of a rough yeah. at, at some point. Yeah. Know. But Charles, tell just briefly, um, when Julie came to see you after the heart issue. Oh, so I will, you know, after this... Uh, I had an aortic aneurysm, you know, really nearly died. And um, anyway, I, I, like a lot of people, I was plunged into terrible depression after my heart surgery. It happens a lot. And, uh, and so uh, someone had told me that I should read Deepak Chopra's book, The Seven, what's it called? I forget. Anyway, it's a famous book. Yeah. Uh, and, and one of the big chapters was but to that to achieve serenity, you must stop passing judgment on people and things. And so I really tried. I was like, really don't judge, invite us over. Don't pass judgment. I was trying to be, and I, it was kind of working, you know. And then, and then Julie Halson comes over, her, and you know, and within, she's like reading a magazine, you know, sitting there, and within ten minutes, she had passed judgment on about thirty-seven people. <laughs> Oh, look at her plastic surgery. Oh, oh, this one. She's doing a comedy. Oh, she's a comedy killer. This one, you know, and, and you and it's it's contagious, you know. So I start jumping in with her, and and it's just like this orgy of passing judgment and criticism. And it's fun. And I finally said, "Stop!" I said, "Julie, you <laughs> you've set my serenity back three weeks." <laughs> well, you know, first of all, you know, he's he's first of all, I I go over there, and he's like lighting candles and intense things. And I was like, listen, I knew this guy for years and years. He, he had to have a fucking candle lit. And that, you know, what intense. What, 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 what is this, 1972? I mean, it, it just drove me crazy. And he's showing me a little box that this woman had given him, this woman, I'm not going to mention her name. And, and I, I was just like, She's a cunt. I mean, I'm sorry, but she's horrible. She's horrible. And and he was like, "Don't say that." Don't. Say. I said, "It's true." You know. And you, you know what? We Andrew Reynolds and I always say this because I love to drop a name. You know, if it's true, it's not gossip. <laughs> if it's true, it's not gossip. 
And we should point out, Charles, I bet you weren't depressed when she left. No, I wasn't. I wasn't serene either. <laughs> well, the serenity well, I, was the conduit. Serenity Thank is, you. Is a serenity destroyer. I used to also call her the Teflon comedian <laughs> because everybody loves her so much. That she, you know, she can be, she can really be a cunt. And oh, you know, Julie, Julie's Julie, you know. So I thought, oh, she's a Teflon comedian. Nothing sticks. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, now I have to go to Carl because yeah. Carl Andrus. Now, of course, I don't have someone famous introducing him. Sure, well, you got Joan yeah. Rivers. Yeah, well, it will. It will be the famous people. Maybe we're not. Yeah, well, exactly. Not you got Joan Rivers. You got Elizabeth Ashley. I'm out of famous people. But I've got the two of you. Charles, tell us how you met Carl. Carl was a very young man who, uh, Carl's the kind of person that, that can do anything. And he throws himself in 100% to everything he does. And he was, you know, came to New York. And he was, I guess, ambitions maybe to be an actor. I don't know, but he he can do anything. So we we I was doing a play called Swing Time Canteen, this '40s musical that that I uh, and Allison Fraser had been the lead, and then I I took over after she left the show. And uh, he was uh, we needed a wardrobe master, and Allison was still in the show, and she she interviewed two people. One was this older woman who was rather kind of dour. And, and then this young boy, Carl uh, uh, Andrews, who had never done wardrobe work at all, but he was a big fan of Allison's. And he was, you know, very personable and charming. And, and Allison being very, almost like Messalina said, I'll take the boy. <laughs> and, and so then he, that's how I met him. And then, you know, he was, it was clear that he was this very superior person and, and could do anything. And you know, he's grown into being this wonderful director. And I should also say that he's now the artistic director of a marvelous uh, a regional theater, the, the Sharon Playhouse in Sharon, Connecticut. And oh. so, anyway, so here he is, Carl Andrus. Oh, Thank God. And Carl, I did not know till I read the book that I saw you act in Die, Mommy, Die in Los Angeles at the Coast Playhouse. Yes, no, that was that was a great period. We were there from like May to November at the Coast Playhouse. It was endless. It was a, it was a Really great experience. I, I loved my time in LA doing that show. It was it was wild. We had a lot of crazy experiences doing. That. Can I tell them? Can I tell them the, the story about the, the our fight? Yes, he girls has fights with all. Well, there's them. always a fight, Barry. <laughs> well, this is, this is, well, you know, Carl. He was very young. I think what you're like 25 years old at this point, maybe. And anyway, we were doing this play in LA, Die, Mommy, Die, and and I don't know. We had a terrible performance where the dead audience and we had all these understudies going on and I, I was just fit to be tied and I behaved very badly on stage, you know? And uh, anyway, so Carl was very ups upset with me and, and we, it was a two show day. We'd done a matinee. We still had an evening show to do. We had a dinner break and Carl wasn't speaking to me. So <laughs> I just, I went over to him. I said, listen, I, I, said, I, I said, kid, I said, you know, I said, you know, you're going to forgive me anyway. So can we just like, Edit it down. Just forgive me now, so we can have a nice dinner. And he said, "Okay." <laughs> well, in fact, and I met Charles at the height of the sort of issue with me between he and Julie. I ended up meeting oh. him time at a benefit that they appeared at. I was helping Charles at that benefit, and I finally got to meet this figure. And I just immediately <laughs> fell in love with her, and I said, 
tell me why we're not friends with the fun blonde lady? <laughs> I know that was very sweet. He said, "Gee, I wish you would talk to her. She's awfully fun." Um, and now, and now, Carl directs my big gala every year, Billy, for the Pullman. Oh, for Pullman the foundation. Party. Yes, and he directs it, and we can't do it without him. Well, not only that, he's become indispensable to Charles as a director as well. We've done yeah. twenty-five plays now. What so. was the first? What was the first play you directed, Carl, with this troupe? Uh, it was called Queen Amarantha, and it was sort of uh, Charles really wanted to sort of step away from being from doing spoofs, and he really wanted to do a play where he sort of could embody a Sarah Bernhardt-like character. He was really wanted to like act in a melodrama without sort of kidding it at all. And so um, I was, you know, right out of college, and I thought that just sounded great. Like we'd be really, you know, very bam, you know, very, you know, we'd have a Ming Cho Lee sort of set, and we'd very avant-garde, and oh, it's just so exciting. But um, but I didn't have the history of of sort of being in New York and knowing what Charles's audience was like, and so I was really, you know, we were just really going for it. Um, but unfortunately, we just we anytime we get a laugh, we we cut it. So. So it was a rather dour affair, even though it was beautiful, and people who really sort of appreciated the effort really liked it. But most people thought, like, why isn't the wacky redhead being funny? And- <laughs> but, you know, we learned, we learned a lot, actually, because, so, you know, I, we were getting all these inadvertent laughs because the audience thought, oh, you know, it, it really seemed ripe for spoof, this, you know, historical melodrama where, you know, it's sword fights and, and all this sort of thing. And But, you know, I want, the idea was I wanted you know, I just wanted to be a dramatic actress. And uh, so they were <laughs> laughing at, you know, wrong places. And I was dev- devastated. I really, I just wept, you know, I was so humiliated. So then Carl and I decided to see if we could cut out all of those laughs that we didn't want. But you you learn a lot about how to get a laugh by, by learning how to kill a laugh. You know, so it's like the same thing, like, oh, you know, break up the line, you know, uh, pause, various things and, and uh, it, it was actually very helpful in the in the long scheme scheme of things i was very interested when you talked charles in the book that your first drafts can be much longer and that you like to whittle it down you like the cutting i love it love it my, my favorite favorite thing in the world what gives me <laughs> the most pleasure is once i have a script that i have something on paper then just rewriting and rearranging and cutting and oh i can just go back into the computer into the document four times a day and just just change that word back change it back again go return it delete it bring it back i i it's i i i realize i'm happiest not necessarily performing but just when i'm really in the throes of, of writing something and rewriting it's just i can't keep away it's an addiction what is that like for you as an actress, Julie? Do things change? And like, do you remember which version are we doing? It can be a little tricky. Uh, I think I've gotten a lot better at it because because of television. So mm. on television, you have to be very facile and you have to be very fast. You have to speak fast on television and you have to memorize fast. And they're constantly getting, you know, things thrown at you. And I think that has helped me actually even in the theater, because um, you, 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 you just have to do it, you it's know? True. But when we do it in a play, though, actually with, with me, I don't really change much uh, 
once we go into rehearsal, it's Carl right. together. Carl and I are doing all, all the all the changes before the actors get there. And, and of course, we did a play yep. which was called the Jeffy Artist. Charles, I was just going to go there. Yep. We were playing these, you know, these rather, um, you know, disreputable characters. But uh, that play, we found that we did need to put cuts in and do some rewrites early on. But Charles just didn't want to have to relearn anything. So he was just <laughs> editing these lines. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. lines, I can't learn anything new. No, but, it's true. And at one point, I remember Jonathan Walker just said to me, what the hell is he doing? I said, oh, well, we're just shifting lines. <laughs> I remember seeing that because that was the first, I don't know, it might be the first time, Charles, that I had seen you play a boy role. And I know that that was something, and you talk about it in the book, that it, the book, the very important book, Leading Lady. Do you see? We're selling books here. Um, when you talk about that, you know, you had never really felt comfortable playing those boy roles on stage, and you wanted to find a way into playing that. Did tribute artists help that at all? Not particularly. No, but it, what was interesting <laughs> with that play was just that it was the only play I've ever done th that uh, where I playing I'm playing a man who's posing as a woman. Usually, you know, I just, mm. I just play a, a, a lady. But in this one, it was that kind of story, and um, and yet it, I was I don't think I was I was never out of drag in the in oh in yeah the play. you were I was, I was at always the beginning I was always dressed as the character, but then I would drop the act, but I was still wearing the costume. So I thought that that was kind of an interesting thing that Carl and I figured out. So you had told me during the pandemic, you know, I don't know, years ago, that you and Carl wanted to make a movie during the pandemic. And the question was how to get it done. And this was also really at the beginning. We didn't know what was going on. How do you test? What are the regulations? So who came up with the idea of the Six the Real first? Carl. Okay, Carl, take it. Well, we uh, we had a, a, an opportunity to work with uh, the producer Ash Christian, late Ash Christian, who passed away just before we went into production. Um, but tr so we finished this, the run of our play, The Confession of Little Dare, on March 5th of 2020. And we found ourselves with a lot of time on our hands. So we ended up uh, sort of figuring out what we wanted to do with that opportunity over Skype. And once we lit on an idea um, for the movie, we then sort of got on Skype for hours every day until we had a story hashed out. If we had, we had had an idea about um, uh, trying to come up with a plot around a lost film uh, many years ago, but the the it, we just got over ambitious and the budget would skyrocket, and we just thought we have to come up with something a little simpler, which resulted in our movie, um, uh, a very serious person. But um, as we were developing it, you know, I had such a fond affection for that play, uh, the tribute artist. And Charles thought, like, you know, maybe I'll play a male role in this movie. I thought, well, what mm. if we a version of Jimmy Nichols? And what if we have Julie play a version of her character? But what if we, because I would, I really wanted to capture their stage chemistry in a movie so that we'd have it for all time. And uh, and that, and so that was the, the goal, was fashioning a story where Charles and Julie could be funny and poignant and wacky and run around in costumes and, well, that was always a fantasy of mine to, to for Julie and I to be in a movie, uh, a real, like a zany caper movie, where we're where we dress up in wacky outfits and run around like idiots all over Greenwich Village, and you know, we got to do it. 
You know, I just want to show a very quick clip of Julie's entrance in the film. If oh, I my. I know, this clips. Helen, how'd you get in the front door? It was open. Any indigent could have entered the building. Obviously, you're Jimmy. <laughs> yeah. Helen, I, I feel we started off badly on the phone. Forgive me if I was brusque. Uh, diplomacy is not my strong suit. Oh, my. I've never been to Uncle Gerald's apartment. I had no idea he lived like this. I mean, all these boxes. They contain his collections. Newspaper clippings, film and theater magazines. Some of them date back to 1905. Is this drum really filled with old copies of TV Guide? It's a sickness! TV guides from the 60s are extremely collectible. This is clearly a world I know nothing about. And I'm glad. What were you expecting? Oh, I don't know. Um, Dorothy's ruby slippers? Uh, Marilyn's white subway dress? This is all crap! <laughs> <laughs> It's, uh, I mean, if you were looking to capture the two of them, you captured them. Yeah, it was. This is all crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, some things, you know. I've known Julie. I've written. I've been writing for Julie. I've been one of her writers. I've been writing for Julie for forty years, and I know. I know her voice so well that I mean, it's down. It's I, I've got it down now to what consonants to use, vowels <laughs> to use to. To, you know, to really get, you know, ex exploit her. So, yeah, I mean, I really, like, I got, I really can write for Julie Halston. Well, when we made this movie in 18 days, and what was really made it easy was that these two have a natural chemistry and have been playing off each other so for so long that their scenes just flew into place almost immediately. What was the shooting like during COVID? Because you were in lockdown. Julie, what was it like for you? Well, I must say, though, it was actually quite strange, but fun, because we were in lockdown when we went to our separate quarters, you know, in this hotel. We could not eat together. Uh, we would, once we finished filming for the day, we went to our separate quarters, and it was almost like, you know, it was scary, and we just were by ourselves. We didn't speak to each other. There was no socializing, whatever. However, when we got to the set, I think we were all so excited, you know, to see each other, to do this or whatever. And, you know, I love a crew. I love crews. And, and uh, I, would, I, I love to just, I love to make crews laugh, you know, because um, they're, they're usually, there's usually, um, there's such diversity with the crew. There's, there's always a few lesbians. There's always a few straight girls. <laughs> There's always, you know, straight guys. There's always the gay guys. There's, it, it, it's just so fun. Crews are great. And we had to remember Klein. You know, I was always talking about Klein. And uh, it was so fun socially because we could not socialize after the shoot. So we had fun doing the scenes and, 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 and being together. Well, we had 80 people COVID free with our COVID team, 80 people COVID free for the entire month that we were really all together. So that was a real accomplishment. But what was really funny is just sort of 
seeing Julie and Charles just sort of, you know, because we had to be masked and double masked and shielded. The crew, we never took that stuff off. But the actors would show up and they would, you know, be fully masked and everything. And then they get into the set to play an intimate scene. And well, Julie, you tell them your response to that. Well, at one point, I had a scene where I had to be in bed with Timothy Daly, and he was supposed to be performing a sexual act on me, and 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 I had to respond, no masks, obviously, and whatnot. And I, I was just like, "Wait a minute, wait a minute, we're masked, we're shielded, and now he's just going to go down on me, and this is just crazy." I mean, it's, how is this COVID responsible? <laughs> on top of, on top of that, was <laughs> you know I, I'm I'm co-director although carl really directed the movie oh right anyway, but yeah I, I just wanted to officially be able to throw my two cents in on everything and carl <laughs> was very generous but uh anyway uh as co-director so for and tim daly in this movie uh goes a bit seduces both julie and i to get this rare fil film that he's trying to you know uh, get a hold of and so first we shot tim daly's in bed with me and oh. you know, he's a, such a great guy. And, and I just, it was just wonderful, you know, be, being with this great guy and he's so handsome. And then, then the next thing he has to get into bed with Julie. I, I got a little jealous. I mean, I, I, it was like insane. I got a little jealous. So I'm, you know, so I'm watching them shoot the scene and their scene is much more intimate than my scene is with them. And so since I was, you know, nominally co-director, I, uh, <laughs> I went over to the bed, and then Julie's on one side, Tim's on the other. I said, Julie, I think, you know, in this next uh, next take, don't, uh, I think you should play it for comedy. <laughs> not not so sexy, just play it for comedy. She said, get out of here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, get out of here. No, it, it, it was it was a lot of fun. It was, it was really so much fun to make. And, you know, it was a, a, such a terribly strange time, you know, we didn't know what was going on, uh, but everyone was so responsible. Everyone was really, really professional and great. And uh, clearly it worked. Yeah, not, not only clearly it worked, but clearly you got to work because it was probably the only work most of most people did at that yeah. time. Yeah. That 2020 when we were filming it and you know we had half the cast of Hades Town from Broadway uh suddenly everybody was a <laughs> right and willing yeah yeah um and since you mentioned that you both got to sleep with Tim Daly there is one other little scene that I think uh sums it up you manipulated Blabbermouth into bed so you could weasel the truth out of her and I then did. just a minute I had every intention of having sex with Blabbermouth before I knew about the movie. I appreciate that. And then you contrived to climb into my bed so you could send me off in the morning on a wild goose chase for coffee and a buttered toasted corn muffin to rip me off blind. You are a vile, despicable human being. Call me whatever you like. Do you think that I would let a miserable bottom feeder like Doris Pang get her hands on the movie? To protect this film, I would sleep with a lot worse than you. Well, on this one point, we must be clear. You did sort of enjoy it, didn't you? You're not unappealing, but it was a means to an end. 
Well, I feel placated knowing that you made love with me out of personal desire. That was a cute scene. Oh my God, it's so funny. It is such a great, I mean, finding two little short clips. I'm sitting there, but there's more. And and what does it say about me that as much as I love Tim Daly, I really now want a toasted buttered corn muffin. <laughs> really? I'm shocked and a little bit sad. Thank you. And a little turned on? <laughs> Yeah, the movie. Get, we're, we're on, when, when, Carl, when does the movie go out on streaming? I think later this month. I think October twentieth was it? Was it October? Yeah, yeah. later. This month. Yeah. Well, we will definitely um, uh, announce it in the column. Is there? Is I'm going to go around, Carl. Is yeah. there a play of Charles Ouvre, as we say in the business, that you would like to get your hands on? Well, I. Get my hands on most of them. So yeah, you know, anything you know, I haven't gotten your hands on at this point. Yeah, really. I mean, we've sort of done, you know, everything. I just the next one. Oh, okay. Julie, is there one that either you missed out on? And again, we I have to have Julie on alone because I have so many questions for her, including how she felt with vampire lesbians and chose to stay on Wall Street but be an understudy. We'll get to that some other time. But is there something either that you never got to do that you want to do or that you would like to relive? Uh, mm, not necessarily. Um, I, I still think, you know, it would be wonderful. Uh, we There was talk of doing a movie of the Divine Sister. And... That would that that Charles and I really were, yeah. were sort of really hoping for that. Uh, that would be lovely. Um, but no, no, I don't feel that way. I just, you know, you know, we 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 have had so much fun doing all the plays that we have done, and I have so much. I don't know, just great, 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 great memories of of all of it, and. Uh, no, I feel like. Did we... you ever have designs on either allergist wife roles? No, but people have brought it up to me. <laughs> uh, but I, I've not had designs on it. I mean, Linda Lavin and Michelle Lee were just brilliant. Um, I think, I, I, I certainly think I could do it. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, no, good okay. question. No, I haven't. Yeah. And we've done. Charles, we've, we've also done. You know, with with most of the plays that we've di- did, we've all we've done revivals or we've done um, one night readings of them. So we, we've kind of re- we've done Lady in Question again. We've done Vampire Lesbians again at the Music Box. We've done uh, Red Scare. Uh, so we've kind of had the opportunity a number of times to re- revisit, and it's been lovely experiences each time. Yes. Um, all right. Well, we want to tell people the sixth reel did is it is not out yet, but by the time you're watching this, it is probably available for screening. Charles and Carl, you're doing another play this winter. Can you tell us anything? You want to talk about? Yeah, it's uh, Charles's latest play. It's called Ibsen's Ghost, and Charles plays Henrik Ibsen's widow in the weeks following the great man's state funeral, and must decide what will happen with the rest of her life. And so we I like to think of it as 
the Ibsen play that he never wrote that's got a lot more laughs and a happy ending. It's no <laughs> seagull, though. Yeah, but hilarity ensues. <laughs> Julie, do you have anything coming up? I'm actually starting rehearsal tomorrow with Matthew Broderick and Anna Klumsky and Ann Harada and um, Chris Ashley is directing. It's um, Sinclair Lewis's novel Babbitt oh. is being done as a play adapted by Joe DiPietro. And we are going, we're going to rehearse in New York for three and a half weeks. And then we're going to go to La Jolla, actually three weeks. And then we're going to go to La Jolla around October 22nd. And I believe we open in La Jolla, California at the Playhouse November 7th, and we'll be there until December 3rd or the 10th of December. And um, it's politically more relevant than ever before. And um, we're going to dedicate it to Mike McGraw, who passed away recently, and he was supposed to be in it as well. And um, it's going to be very emotional tomorrow, uh, but I'm excited to be, dare we say, in the room where it happens. And uh, I'm excited to be back on a, a stage. And we, I think, would like to see this go to Broadway in the spring. Fantastic. Um, I have one last teeny, teeny clip. But, Charles, I'm just playing to you for this one. But, you know, we mentioned Tale of the Algis Wife, which, of course, um, was on Broadway with Linda and... Oh, my God. And our friend, Michelle Lee, who um, Charles jumped in and played with here, uh, and Tony Robbins. Um, but um, you did play the role eventually, Charles. You know, Julie may not have played either role, but Charles, you did take on the Linda Lavin, Valerie Harper role. Yeah, I think it was that in 2019, I think, maybe. And, and uh, yeah, I that one really night, which was fantastic. I never really I'd never really fantasized about it. It was, you know, the, my goal was to write a big role for a, an older actress and uh but then uh linda came up with this idea to for the 20th anniversary of the play uh that we should do a one night actors fund benefit on broadway and another one <laughs> say yeah, another one she, and again it was her idea her idea and i assume because she you know she looks so great and she's so active that she would play her role and she said no no she that i should play her role and that she would play the role of the mother that cheryl bernheim had originally played and cheryl had passed away and she put on her uh, producer's cap and she got all the rest of the original cast back and and, and lynn meadow the director and ann roth did the costumes again and it was another the it's funny like with the career i mean some of these one night events really are kind of the the among the great nights of my career if i you know mm. sometimes it's a play but but often it's just those those special events that you that stay in your mind forever well you did play it one more time online and i just want to share one quickie little clip oh, is this a zoom or something oh Ray and i were thinking of uh taking a trip together where would you go on a cruise well, i've never been to germany we were thinking of taking a boat trip down the rhine you're joking you, you, you got to be kidding. Not at all. You know how fascinated I am by German culture. I've studied the language. Why shouldn't I go? Have you ever heard of a little thing called the Holocaust? Your father's entire family was wiped out in the gas chambers. I can't believe you would set foot on German soil. Most of the time, I'll be on a boat. 
Oh, your glib, your glib, your glib tone fails to amuse. <laughs> that was a wild period, though, during COVID, where where suddenly it was like the early days of television. We were we did all these Zoom plays. Well, yeah, and we should mention that was for plays in the house and stars in the house. Um, which Seth Rudesky and James Wellesley started. They actually got me to start this show. Julie had virtual Halston, which was extraordinary. Thank you. And they're all online, and you really should do them occasionally still. Yes, I should. We People just don't do have stop me. They do stop me on the street. It's very sweet. They were like, you got me through. It was very, it's wonderful. I well, won the oh, contest, Julie. I oh, Show I I won the contest of, of being able to imitate Mrs. Halston. <laughs> well, I just remember because Seth had started doing it and said to me, um, "Why don't you do something? We've got to entertain people. They're sitting home with nothing to do, and even if it's just for an hour, that they get to laugh a little." And um, it also kept us sane. And Charles and I uh, spent a Thanksgiving together because we said, well, there are people home who can't go to their family. Let's just do a show eating dinner and just talking. Fun. It was lovely. Fascinating period. Yeah. It really was a fascinating period. Yeah, I mean, there were all, all those. Yeah, I, I must have done about seven different plays on. on oh, yeah. Got, some of them really live forever. And it really was like the early days of television because they started off really primitive and then gradually we started doing them in costume and adding props and, and doing sort of tricks where since we were sh shooting in different locations. Like oh, I well, Carl did that uh, thing where you handed yeah. the script. Yeah, yeah. We that was one of my favorite things. Very ambitious. And I think the last one I did, they had backdrops and all sorts of things going yeah, on. When we did uh, a, a Die, Mommy, Die. It was yes, yeah, right. Yeah. All right, we could talk, obviously, this group can talk forever. Uh, I want to thank everybody. Charles, of course, who's been here from day one. Julie, who I never could get because she was too busy. She was the only person during pandemic that was overbooked. It was extraordinary. <laughs> she would just text me back, doll, I'd love to, but I got a show. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, Kyle Andrus, thank you so much. Go see the movie, The Sixth Reel, when it comes out. Leading Lady, a memoir of a most unusual boy. Grab it. They all appear in it. And um, uh, if you stay afterwards, Julie probably has to run, but if you stay afterwards, we'll chat afterwards. Thank you all for being here. This has been so fantastic. Thank you. It was wonderful. Thank you very much. And thank you to everyone watching. Um, we will be back next week. I will announce it later. Thank you for watching Billy Masters Live. Of course, I have been Billy Masters. And as we always say, if we're here, we're live. Bye.